The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Open up to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And I'm thankful to Cliff who just read that passage for us. And uh, because this passage, so, you know, if you are using... Uh, a normal Bible that you would get online or buy in the store, then you likely have some subheadings splitting up the passages of the Bible. And this would be no different. Yours might say something like mine, a sinful woman forgiven. And prior to that, you might have a section that says messages, messengers from John the Baptist, that's verses 18 and onward. And just before that, Jesus raises a widow's son. And that's great and that's helpful. The problem is, is those subheadings along with the verse markings and the chapter markings, were not included in the original text. And so these are helpful additions that help us divide things up and see where we're at in the text. But they sometimes throw us off from seeing how everything is connected. And in fact, this passage that we are going to look at, I'm persuaded, is meant to be read in light of the sentence that we just saw last week, verse 35, yet wisdom is justified by all her Children. So I actually want us to run briefly to, through last week's message. It'll only take a minute, if you'll bear with me, so that we can read and understand the passage for today rightly. So remember that Jesus' mini-sermon on John the Baptist and his ministry concluded with this statement that wisdom is justified by all her children. The religious leaders in this context, the Pharisees and the lawyers, had dismissed Jesus' and John's ministry on superficial grounds. Remember, John was too rigorous in his lifestyle, and Jesus was too lax, and John was weird, and uh, Jesus associated with unholy people. But Jesus's point in the passage, concluding with his final statement, was, listen, the fruit of those ministries will be all the vindication that they need. The Pharisees were creating more Pharisees, men who were hypocritical, men who were consumed with religious form and outward appearance, but had no inward reality. And yet Jesus and John were creating followers who were experiencing the forgiveness of God and having their lives turned upside down and transformed to love God and to love their neighbor. So wisdom, namely the wisdom that with which John and Jesus conducted their ministry, was justified by the fruit it was producing, the people it was producing. So, as we move into this passage for today, we need to see it, that is, that see it as a continuation, or even better yet, a, an illustration of Jesus' point in the previous passage. Let's just look at it briefly. In verses 32 through 35, Jesus commented on the, the spiritual fickleness of the religious leaders. He said they're like this, "...they, the religious leaders, are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another." We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And remember, we said last week that what, hap- what was happening here is that Jesus and John did not satisfy the rel- religious leader's desire for their type of religion. They wanted a religion of prominence. They wanted a religion of self. They wanted a religion of form without much substance. They wanted a religion of prestige to get garner the approval of others, and John and Jesus simply did not fit those expectations. And so the Pharisees and the religious lead, other religious leaders reject, rejected Jesus and John for superficial reasons. Remember what those reasons were. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, so you just won't be satisfied. It doesn't, you could have two very different ministries, and if they're bringing the truth of repentance and mercy from God, then you're going to reject them, and you're going to make up reasons for why you rejected them. So the main point of Jesus' mini-sermon on John the Baptist and this mini-sermon on Jesus' ministry and the fruit of it was simply to point out that the children that the ministry produces will be the proof of that ministry. So as we move into verse 36 then, we are meant to see this passage as an illustration, or better yet, 
a concrete living example of the spiritual fickleness of the religious leaders and the fruit that Jesus' ministry is producing. And so now we're going to transition to speak specifically of the children that Jesus' ministry is going to produce. And that makes sense because John's ministry has now faded out of the limelight. He must decrease, so Jesus must increase. But nevertheless, we're going to see here in this story the fruit the children that Jesus' ministry is producing. Not only that, but we'll see also an illustration of some spiritual fickleness on the side of the religious leaders. So let's move into verse 36 now. It says this, that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Now, you might be thinking, given the spiritual fickleness of these religious leaders and what we just heard about them in verses 31 and following, and, and how stern Jesus was and how sharp he was in his comments about them, you might be tempted to think that Jesus should turn down this request. Here's a, one of the Pharisees. He just got done talking about the Pharisees and how they are rejecting John and Jesus' ministry for superficial reasons. And now he come, this Pharisee comes along and asks him for a, asks him to dinner, gives him an invitation to dinner. You might be thinking, well, Jesus should just reject this request. Forget those blind religious leaders. But here's what's key. Jesus is a Savior who will deliver the good news to Pharisees, and he'll deliver the good news to the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus will minister to the poor and to the rich. Remember, we saw that he was willing to minister to the centurion who would have had high social standing, who would have been exceedingly wealthy, given his cultural standing, and yet Jesus doesn't bypass him and say, oh, you're, you're too rich to get saved. Rather, he ministers the gospel to him. Same here with these Pharisees. For Jesus, in fact, here's, here's what's interesting. If Jesus were to refuse to minister to this Pharisee, he'd be acting a lot like what? Well, a Pharisee, because they refuse to minister to certain kinds of people particularly the tax collectors and the sinners. But Jesus is going to minister to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And you might want Jesus to kind of bypass. You know, you're, you're one of the tax collectors and sinners who's starting to follow Jesus and receive from him some really good news. You might be tempted to think, hey, just, just leave those Pharisees alone. Well, Jesus is actually going to take up this invitation. He's going to go to this man's house, and he is going to minister the truth to him in a very lively and graphic way. And just as an aside, if we're going to follow Jesus and minister like Jesus, it's likely that we'll catch grief from two different sides of people. We'll catch grief from the religious hypocrites who don't want us to minister to the, the sinners, and we'll catch grief from the sinners who don't want us to minister to the religious hypocrites. But that's the cost of following Jesus. And it just might be a, an indication that you're moving in the right direction when you're catching grief from both sides. Now, Jesus, of course, will have specific things to say to both kinds of groups of people, won't he? So he'll speak to the Pharisees and he'll indicate and tell them, listen, your problem is, is that you are all wrapped up in form with no inward reality. He'll take them to task for their religious hypocrisy in order to wake them up. You see this in Matthew 23 when he, he just descends upon these religious leaders with a series of woes so that they might wake up and recognize how deeply entrenched they were in their hypocrisy. But at the same time, he will also minister to the tax collectors and the sinners in a, a specific way, telling them that their disregard for God's holiness will incur God's judgment. So Jesus will craft his words to fit each group's specific spiritual need as they require. Jesus will minister to both kinds of people. So Luke tells us that Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table with them, which means he was going to have a meal in his home. He was going to receive his invitation. It's a big deal. Jesus was not afraid to minister to tax collectors and sinners, and he was not afraid to minister to hypocritical religious leaders. And let that just be a lesson for us. But something happens at this meal, something stark, something even troubling for some of who were there. 
likely. In fact, that seems to be the indication. What happens? Well, as they are reclined at table, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner comes upon them, all of a sudden bursts through the door. Now, the phrase is a woman of the city who was a sinner is simply a couched way that this is a woman of the night, this is a prostitute, this is a woman who sells her body for sex to men who would pay for it. And so we have to situate ourselves in this cultural setting. Think of it for a moment. You have a Pharisee who prides himself on his external religion and the external appearance of his religion, the external appearance of his godliness. In fact, external purity was the heart and soul of their religion. In fact, the word Pharisee can mean separate or pure. They ritually washed their hands before meals in order to not defile themselves spiritually. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It's probably a good idea if you want to wash your hands before meals and use a little foam soap. Foam soap is preferable to the gel soap I prefer. But, but if you want to wash your hands before meals, nothing wrong with that. You have some, some hygiene uh, concerns, wash your hands. That's not what they were doing. They were washing their hands in order to remain spiritually pure. Nothing required from them in that sense and from God. But nevertheless, they, they thought it was required and they required it of others. So they washed their hands before meals. They carefully and strategically displayed their righteous deeds for others to see. They diligently guarded the Sabbath with all kinds of rules. And they certainly did not allow a prostitute into their home. The very worst of the worst, they could not allow to come into their home because that would defile them. And not only that, probably ruin their reputation. So the very presence of this woman in Simon's home would have been an utter scandal in this cultural setting with these religious leaders. Just an utter scandal. It just would have been shocked, red-faced, embarrassed, upset, even angry at such a situation. But the scandal is about to get worse. Okay? So that's where we're at. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house. Now, just for a moment, what had she heard? She had heard about who Jesus was. We're not entirely sure but of all that she knew, but she knew enough to believe in him, as we'll see in a moment. We, he, she knew enough to know where he was located. And the, the language here seems to indicate that this, was, this is something anticipated. She had made a plan to go and see him in this way. When she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So what's the, the setting here? What does this look like? Well, Jesus would have likely have been laying on his side with facing the table where they were eating their meal. That's what it means to be reclined at table. So this would have been a low set table, low to the ground. Jesus is reclining there along the, the length of the table, facing the table with his legs parallel with the table. So if you come in the door behind him, all you're going to see is the back of Jesus you're not going to be able to get around to in front of him because the table's there. So her only option to get to Jesus and to do this would be to come up behind him and start anointing his feet. And she's not only doing that, but it says that she is weeping. She's not whimpering. She's not just kind of softly crying. She is weeping. So now you have a prostitute, the worst of the worst in this society, who has just burst into your holy assembly, into your home, and you're a Pharisee, you can't, you can't abide by that. And not only that, she is weeping. So this is just a big kind of a messy, embarrassing situation and probably would have been an annoyance, especially to the, the host. Like, who is this woman and what is she doing? I think the host would have been embarrassed. And, and, and as she's weeping, she, Luke says she begins to wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair kissed his feet, and so on. Well, let's think about that action for a moment in this particular setting and who she was who was doing this. This may have appeared, I don't think it's a stress just to, to suggest this, this may have appeared rather sensual to Simon and his guests. Is that a possibility? may even sound like that to you, some of us listening. 
What is she doing? This is totally inappropriate. We know who this woman is. is what, we know what she does for a living. What is she coming in and doing to this man in my presence, in my home? But Jesus is not scandalized. Jesus is not put off by the woman's actions. Jesus does not rebuke her for trying to seduce him because there was no sexual overtones in this act whatsoever. And if someone thinks that there were sexual overtones, that says more about the person who thinks that than it does about the actual act itself. Paul writes this. I just want to lay this text in Titus 1.15 alongside of this text. Paul says this. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jesus in his holiness and purity saw only beauty and goodness in this woman's act. But a, woman with, uh, but a person with a defiled conscience would see this woman's act as something sensual, maybe even filthy. Not Jesus. Jesus sees this act as good, holy, appropriate, beautiful, and fitting, regardless of what Simon and the others may have thought about it. Now, I'm calling him Simon because that's his name. His name hasn't been introduced to, it, to us yet, but it isn't given to us in verse 40, which is why I've been calling him Simon. That's what his, this Pharisee's name was. Now, there's a response to this situation by the Pharisee, by Simon. He doesn't like what he sees. Verse 39, he says, it says, Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So according to Simon, this Pharisee, if Jesus was a real holy man, if he was really a, a prophet, then the appropriate holy, godly response would be to rebuke the woman, tell her to stop it, and clean oneself off from such smut. Probably go wash his hands, wash his body from all this spiritual defilement. And he would know at the very least, if he were in fact a prophet, if he would in, at least know who this woman is who is touching him in such a way. So clearly he is lacking in his prophetic credentials. Well, it says that, Luke says that he said these things to himself. Said, that's what the text says. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself... But Jesus recognizes what's going on here, and he understands how he is thinking. He sees the, the setting, he sees Simon, and he recognizes that Simon is not thinking rightly about this situation. He is not thinking rightly about what has just happened. And so Jesus is going to teach him now. I think this is gracious because this is now going to be a spiritual lesson to Simon, in order to break through this religious facade. And he, so Jesus says to him in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon kindly answers, say it, teacher. And this was the story. It's a little tiny story, little illustration. Here it is. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of them both. Now, 50 denarii would have been a, a significant sum, about 50 days worth of labor. A, a denarii was about a day's worth of labor for a day laborer. So 500 denarii would have been about a year and a half, just, just over, right, right around a year and a half worth of work. That's, they're both significant, but clearly the 500 denarii is a massive sum. And Simon's not stupid, right? Simon has the moral capacity to recognize who out of those two debtors who were just forgiven by their moneylender, who would love their moneylender more? So he puts it to Simon. And Simon says, the one I suppose for whom, the can who canceled, who, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I mean, it just goes without saying, right? It's natural to be able to recognize that the person who has a $50,000 debt, once he's forgiven of that $50,000 debt, is going to have 
more appreciation for, to the money lender than the one who had a $5,000 debt forgiven. Both might have some appreciation, but the one with the larger debt is going to have the, the greater amount of appreciation. And Simon has the moral capacity to see that, and it's simply natural to conclude that. So Jesus affirms Simon's assessment and says, you have judged rightly. But Jesus wasn't interested in merely teaching a quaint lesson on human virtue, was he? Is that all that Jesus was after? No, there is something vitally essential here spiritually and theologically that Simon needs to recognize. Jesus used this story of the moneylender and his two debtors to highlight the infinite gulf that currently resided between Simon and the woman. Again, just a massive, massive irony here, isn't it? Who should be the one recognized as being right with God? Well, it's the religious leader. And who is the one who should be seen as being judged and condemned by God? Well, it should be the prostitute, and yet it's entirely flipped. And there's a massive gulf between these two, but it's not what you would think. It's, in fact, exactly the opposite of what you would think. So Jesus is now going to explain to Simon what this all means and this, this gulf that exists between Simon and this woman. He says, after Simon affirms the right judgment here, uh, Jesus affirms Simon's right judgment here, verse 44, it says, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So the love that the Pharisee has for Jesus and the love that the prostitute has for Jesus is tangibly expressed in how they treated Jesus. That's the point that Jesus is making. The love that Simon had for Jesus is indicated in how he treated Jesus as Jesus entered his home. And the love that the prostitute has for Jesus is indicated by the way she has treated Jesus while she is in Simon's home and while Jesus is in Simon's home. Providing water for a guest's feet was a basic act of kindness, but this was absent from the Pharisee's hospitality. The prostitute, on the other hand, washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And we just need to step back and recognize what a gracious act this, in fact, would have been and what would have been required to to overcome the natural repulsion to doing such an act. Remember, people in this, this day would have worn sandals, right? They don't have these nice leather shoes like I'm wearing now that are, go completely around my foot and socks and all this stuff. But you're wearing sandals and you're out on the dusty, dirty uh, streets all the time. And it's funny, as, as Cliff was reading this passage, my son, my uh, almost 11-year-old son, turned to me and he said, as soon as he read about uh, the washing of the feet, he's like, Daddy, weren't their feet just like really gross all the time? And I'm like, yeah, you're a great biblical scholar. <laughs> that is the case. I mean, the feet were gross, right? And, and so one of the ways you show hospitality is by at least supplying uh, something for them to wash their feet with, for your guests to wash their feet. Well, Simon didn't do that, yet the, the prostitute, this, this woman, is going to get down right next to Jesus' feet, and not only wash it, but, but kiss them and, and bring her hair over atop his feet. It would have been a remarkably humbling and gracious action by the woman because of the nature of people's feet. Greeting a guest with a kiss would demonstrate a basic level of affection, but Simon offered no kiss or warm welcome. The woman, however, is kissing Jesus on his feet and hasn't stopped since she came through the door. So here's what's clear, Simon. Here's what's clear. You don't love me, but this woman does, and her love for me is not able to be contained. It is overflowing. Now, why is that the case? Cultural differences? Personal inclination? Personality? What is it? What's the difference? What's the reason for this difference of treatment to Jesus by these two different people. He tells us, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Why is there such a massive difference between Simon's conduct towards Jesus and the woman's conduct? 
because the woman had experienced the forgiveness of her sins and Simon had not. That's why we say there's this infinite gulf between the two. It's ironic, but nevertheless true. Simon does not stand in right standing with God. The woman who has devoted her life to one of the most defiling acts you can do stands right with God. Why? Because of the grace of forgiveness. When Jesus says he who is forgiven little loves little, he's not suggesting that Simon had been forgiven, he just, but that he just had less sin. That's not what he's suggesting at all. No, Jesus is simply noting that Simon in his current and spiritual state thought he was only in need of a little forgiveness because he didn't have much sin. Therefore, he hadn't come to Jesus for full cleansing. He hadn't experienced that the goodness of Christ, and as a result, he had very little love for God. No true love for God at all. And this was the main problem with the religious leaders, wasn't it? I mean, as we work our way through Luke, we'll see this even more clearly, but we are told that they specifically look down on others. This is Luke 18. They look down on others because they thought they themselves were righteous. They were the righteous ones, and they looked down on others, particularly these flagrant sinners. That's Luke 18, 9 through 14. They couldn't see that they were utterly dead in sin and a stench to God. No different than the worst of sinners like prostitutes and tax collectors. So they couldn't get relief from their sin which would lead to a love for God. Isn't it interesting? Paul, a former Pharisee, towards the end of his Christian pilgrimage, as he is growing downward in humility, will refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Which is no wonder why he loved Jesus so much. Because he sensed the depth of his sin. Well, this is what the religious leaders were missing, sadly. Because they didn't see their sin and the depths of it, and they didn't see the remedy for it, they didn't experience the relief from it, and therefore did not experience a love for God. Now, before we get to the end of this wonderful story, we do need to take up a point here that has come up because of how this passage has been interpreted by many a Roman Catholic Bible interpreter, and even some misguided Protestant Bible interpreters. Let's look again together at verse 47. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are, many, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, this may, getting into this and teasing it out, may kind of sound like splitting hairs. Let me assure you that it is not. The gospel hinges. Your salvation hinges. My salvation hinges on whether or not we get that verse right, believe it or not. It looks like, for she loved much, it looks like her loving of Christ are the grounds for her forgiveness. But that is a misinterpretation. So this is not splitting hairs. If the grounds for our forgiveness is anything in us, including our expressions of love for God, we are hopelessly lost. And if the means by which we receive forgiveness is anything other than faith, we are totally undone. So this is not splitting hairs. We need to see clearly that Jesus is teaching in this passage that love for God flows from free forgiveness, a forgiveness that is procured by Christ himself apart from anything in us and that is given to us as a gift by faith alone. Love is not the cause of forgiveness. Love is the fruit of forgiveness. If you, if you mix it up, you've lost the gospel. If you mix it up, you have lost the gospel, you've lost your peace, you've lost your assurance. Now, you might think, well, Derek, then we've got we've to go to other passages in the Bible, and we've got to prove clearly, like from Romans, for example, that love is not the cause of our forgiveness. Forgiveness comes first. But in fact, you don't need to go anywhere else to understand that's not what Jesus means here in verse 47. You just need to look at the passage Look at what he, says, what he says in verse 41. The money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And then they are forgiven of their debt. And then the question becomes, who loves the money lender more? In the story of these two debtors, the forgiveness of the debt comes before the love for the money lender and serves as the basis for the love 
toward the moneylender. In, in other words, the moneylender made the decision based on his own goodness, his own desires to forgive this debt. And as a result of that forgiveness, the love comes afterwards. Jesus' question to Simon about which debtor would love the moneylender more only makes sense if love comes after forgiveness. The moneylender forgave the debt without any regard for the debtor's love to him. Love even wasn't part of the equation. The only factor the moneylender considered when canceling the debt was the fact that they had a debt and that they couldn't pay it. Look at what he says. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. There is nothing about their character or their love and affection for the moneylender. It had everything to do with the moneylender's own choice to render a verdict of debt canceled. Debt was the essence of the relationship between the borrowers and the lender. That's how money lending works. I mean, if you currently have a car loan or a mortgage or a school loan, the reason you have a relationship, the basis for that relationship with that money lending institution is the debt. That's it. And they don't care unless you've got a really strange money lender out there. They don't care how much you love them. They want their money back with interest in a particular time frame. And if you don't give it to them, there's going to be trouble. Well, this moneylender is different than most moneylenders we know because he, does, he, he renders his verdict when he realizes that they could not pay. Not only do they have a financial obligation to this moneylender, but now they're in a position that they can't pay it. What, what happened? Well, maybe their business venture failed, or maybe the crop didn't come in they want, the, the way they wanted to, or maybe they lost it all in a gambling ring. We don't know, but all, all we know is that there was a debt that they had, that they had borrowed, and now they cannot pay it back. The debt was looming. They're unable to pay it back to the moneylender. And on that basis alone, the inability to pay it back, does the moneylender now render a verdict, debt canceled? Love is simply not part of the equation. In fact, you just have to ask the question, how could you love a moneylender with whom you have a present debt? who you know is going to require that payment. It's not a matter of love. It's a matter of making sure you get the monthly payments in on time or else face the consequences. The debtor's love came after and as a result of their debt forgiveness, which is why Jesus asked about which debtor would love their money lender more, the one with the 50 or the one with the 500. And it should be clear to everyone, including Simon and his guests, that it is the one who owed the greater debt. So when Jesus begins to describe the difference between the way Simon treated him and the way the, the woman treated him, he is describing the outward manifestation of their love in order to demonstrate who had been forgiven. That's the point of the episode, the point of the passage. When Jesus says, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much, the four is not indicating basis or grounds or reason why her sins were forgiven. That's the way for can be used sometimes. It's often used that time, but sometimes it can be used to indicate evidence or proof, and that's clearly what's happening here. We know this because Jesus says immediately after that, he who is forgiven little loves little, and in that sentence, it's not ambiguous at all. Love in this sentence is clearly the result of forgiveness. So we don't need to go anywhere else in the New Testament to prove very clearly that Jesus is not telling you that love mixed with faith is the basis on which God forgives you. God forgives you on the basis of what Christ has done on your behalf in God's own pleasure, period. Jesus says it this way, for she loved much because he is noting the outward evidence of divine forgiveness. Another way you could paraphrase Jesus' statement is simply like this. Therefore, I tell you, it's been clear to everyone here that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. How do we know that? Because she loved much. You want to know whether or not someone's been given, for, forgiven by God? What, what's, the, what's the evidence? They could say it. They could say that they've been forgiven, but what's the evidence? It's love for Jesus Christ. That's the evidence, and that's what Jesus is pointing out here. There's an observable change in someone who has experienced God's Forgiveness. There's an observable love for God in someone who has been relieved of their infinite debt of sin. That's what Jesus is pointing out. And I know we're on a, a range and a spectrum, and some of us 
depending on our personality or our background or whatever, may, may sense greater love or have greater outward expressions of love or whatever it might be. But nevertheless, there is a change in the person who has been forgiven. I remember having these conversations. First, when I was first in ministry, people would say, you know, they, they believed in Jesus when they were younger, but they didn't really start to love God until they were older. That's not a good sign because Jesus would indicate that love is what flows from forgiveness, and it's the indication that, in fact, you have been forgiven. But you might say, or, or someone who, who is holding to the position that we just mentioned earlier, that love serves as some of the basis for forgiveness, might say, well, look in verse 48. It says that your sins are forgiven. See, that's when Jesus forgave her. She believed and she loved and therefore got forgiveness. Actually, I think in the ESV it's rendered, your sins are forgiven. It's probably better than NASB, your sins have been forgiven. Because, as we already saw, forgiveness is the basis. I mean, you can't understand Jesus' story without understanding forgiveness as being the basis for her love and the cause of it. No, her sins were already forgiven, which is what led to the extravagant expression of love towards Jesus. Jesus simply wants to make the declaration public, not so much to assure her. She seems to be pretty assured of her forgiveness. Look at how she's treating Jesus. I mean, look at what it would have required for her to come in and do what she did to Jesus. She's pretty assured of her forgiveness. Why would he make it public now? Why would he make this declaration public so that Simon and his guests could hear it? Well, we see why. Verse 49, then those who were at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? The purpose for making the declaration public now was in order to indicate that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. And then finally, look at the last verse. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith in the Savior is the means by which this woman received the cancellation of her debt. Faith. The divine moneylender canceled her debt, and she received that gift by faith, nothing else. This is vital. Neither love nor any other virtue was taken into consideration in the cancellation of her debt, nor was love the condition by which she was allowed to receive it. We've already asked this question, how could she love a moneylender to whom she was indebted? You have to be forgiven first. No, she received the gift by faith alone. She received the gift by faith alone. And now just turning to other texts in the New Testament, there's no other way to understand a text like Romans 4, 5 that says that God justifies the ungodly. No love, no virtue contributes to your right standing with God. Forgiveness from God through Christ and what he has done on your behalf is the only grounds and basis. And from that, then, love flows. The moment she received that gift, love did start to flow to Christ. And so this is the vital balance now, isn't it? And it spilled over into a public display of heartfelt gladness and affection for this wonderful, merciful Savior, right? I mean, when you see Jesus as merciful to your soul, as the one who has laid himself down for you, and you see all of your debt canceled for his sake. What flows out of that but love? She didn't care what others might think of her. So this love even gives rise to a kind of courage. She was going to give honor to Jesus no matter what because of his great compassion on her and for her because of her love for him. The point of this episode tying into what we saw last week, was to get Simon and the other guests at his house to see what true religion looks like. They had an idea of what it looked like. It looked like form. It looked like out, outward and external ritual. It looked like attempts at good works to get people to approve of you and to praise you. It looked like prestige from others. That's what it looked like to them. Jesus wants to show them what true religion looks like. What does it look like when someone comes to really know God and experience forgiveness? It looks like this, a broken, tender heart for the Savior. A broken and tender heart for Jesus Christ. That's what true religion looks like. It's the very thing that they had missed, and it's the very thing that Jesus 
will bring up when he pronounces judgment upon them at another dinner invite. In Luke 11, he's going to get invited again to another dinner. And Jesus is going to say this. He's going to say, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now, that love of God could mean love towards God or the love that you receive from God. But either way, what they had missed is this element of love, God's love for them poured out in mercy and a call to repentance and love that would naturally respond to that mercy and forgiveness. They had missed it. When love for God in the heart is absent, a pervasive concern for externals becomes the essence of your religion. Legalism is the fruit of loveless religion, and legalism was precisely what the Pharisees were ensnared in. That's why the heart's so important in Christianity. That's why we labor to keep our hearts in passion for the Lord Jesus. You want to avoid legalism? Care for the heart. Care for the heart. You want to avoid legalism? Care for your heart. Don't let it become mere outward form. And this is precisely what vindicated Jesus' ministry. This kind of transformation in a person who had experienced the forgiveness of Christ. See, the Pharisees were creating more people like themselves. People who thought they were righteous. People who walked around looking down on others. And despising the flagrant sinners in their midst. And, and they didn't reach out to minister to them. That's what the Pharisees were creating. They're just creating more like themselves. That's what their ministry was doing. But Jesus' ministry was producing people who were receiving forgiveness from God and were therefore having their lives transformed and experiencing true spiritual heartfelt love for God. We see it right here. This is the concrete, real-life illustration of what Jesus just said in verse 35, wisdom being vindicated or justified by her children. Here's a child who is the proof of Jesus' ministry. Here's a child who's the proof of gospel ministry. Here's a child who's the proof of mercy from God. The Pharisees couldn't produce that. All they could produce is more legalism. And it was grievous. So I see three practical lessons we need to take home from the story. Three practical lessons. Let's bring this home. Three practical lessons. The first is this. Love for Christ is not optional. It's not optional. We may be tempted to think that because forgiveness is the basis for love, that love somehow becomes optional. That's not what's being taught here. Rightly understood, forgiveness leads to love for Christ. It's only natural, right? And Paul even has strong words for his listeners who would make a mistake here. First Corinthians 16.22, I don't know if you've ever read this verse before, but he says that anyone who does not have love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Wow. Can you, can you believe that? That he would say such a thing? That a person can make a profession of faith and if there's no love for the Lord, that profession is worthless. And, and Jesus even rebukes the church in, of Ephesus in Revelation 2 that they had lost their first love. This, this heartfelt affection for Jesus is vital. So love for Christ is not optional. But second... Second, this is, we need to follow that, up, that point up, up with this second point. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we know that our love for Christ wanes, doesn't it? It's not rock-solid steady all the time. Our passion grows weak. Our love grows weak. We feel it. We even sing about it. We feel it. We sing about it here, about our love growing cold. For us, our hearts, they're like lead weights at times. When we wish our hearts would rise up in praise and adoration and worship of Christ, we find in our hearts a lead, like a lead weight and like a stone. We're crying out to God, oh God, would you revive me? So our love for Christ wanes. It ebbs, it flows. And that's just the Christian life that's living in a fallen world, that's battling sin, that's battling unbelief. Satan loves to have a field day with these kinds of things. So we have to recognize and admit and confess to one another and to ourselves that our love for Christ will ebb and flow. But how is that love for Christ reignited? That's the question, right? How is that love for 
for Christ reignited. If we are following Jesus' argument in this passage, then one of the primary ways that we'll reignite our love for God is to dwell upon the greatness of our forgiveness. That's the remedy, isn't it? If it's forgiveness that brings about that love for God, then it needs to be the, the, the fact that we dwell upon. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home with loving parents or if you were saved at a young age or if you were saved at age 30 after a life of reckless immorality and crime and so on. Your debt of sin against God is massive in either case. And any sin that you commit today could send you into an eternity of judgment had God not forgiven you once for all in Jesus Christ. See, the death of Christ covers all of your sin, not just past sin, but present sin and future sin, as we'll read in our benediction today in Colossians 2, having forgiven us, what? All our sin. The sins that you committed before you came to Christ and the sins you committed and will continue to commit after coming to Christ are covered by the death of Jesus on the cross. Any sin, any sin, big or small, creates an infinite debt of punishment because God is infinitely holy and glorious. We don't like to think of infinity in this way. We don't like to think of eternality in this way. But it is the reality because God himself is infinitely glorious. But he gave his own son to pay that debt in full. So believer, you no longer have any debt with God. He has canceled your debt. If the one who's forgiven much loves much, then it is necessary for us to remind ourselves regularly of how much we have been forgiven. Your multi-trillion dollar debt has been completely wiped out by the death of Christ. You owe nothing any longer. So how do you reignite and refuel that passion and love for Christ? It's by dwelling on the greatness of your forgiveness, which includes both the recognition of your sin, but not just the recognition of your sin, the forgiveness that God has given to you in Christ, which is why it's so essential to do what we did and to see clearly in this passage that it's not love mixed with faith that gets you the forgiveness. It's the forgiveness that God grants you that, bring about, that brings about the love. If we mess that up, then we're, we are going to be ironically actually lacking in love for Christ because we will be ever tossed to and fro by doubts of whether or not he accepts us. Am I loving enough? Am I loving enough? But when forgiveness is seen as a free gift granted to us while we are still ungodly, then love flows to a wonderful, merciful Savior. So this is essential. It's essential for our peace. It's essential for our assurance. It's not splitting hairs to get this absolutely right. Third lesson goes to our unbelieving friends who are here with us today or tuning in. You are under a massive weight of debt. Utterly massive. That will be pressed upon you for all eternity. It's upon you now, and unless you repent, it will be pressed upon you for all eternity. God is infinite. He's holy. He's glorious. He is your creator, and for those reasons, he is worthy of all your love and affection and obedience. But you have spurned him. You have spurned him and gone your own way and created a debt that you will never be able to pay back. You can think of it this way. You owe God the universe. You, you owe him the entire universe. And if you attempt to pay him back, it would be like trying to pay him back with a grain of sand at a time. It's not possible. It can't happen. The debt is too big. You need the forgiveness of your sins. And that only comes by way of Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf. Jesus was the sinless, perfect son of God. He was equal to God in every way. He is God of very God. He became man so that he could perfectly fulfill all of God's requirements for mankind. I just thinking about this as I was driving up here today for church, what a relief just kind of passed over my soul that it's Jesus who pleased the Father. 
I know that I am not always pleasing to the Father and I fail all the time. It's Jesus who pleased the Father. He did it. He fulfilled all that is required for mankind. He has done it all for the sinner. And that's you and you need to come to him. He died on the cross, so he fulfilled all that God has required of mankind. But then he died on the cross to pay for all the infractions that we've committed against God's very law and against God's very person. He was buried in the ground 2,000 years ago, and on the third day after his death, he rose again from the dead so that now, by sheer grace, God will cancel your debt on the basis of what Christ has done. If you go to him and confess, this is key now, if you go to him and confess that you cannot pay it back, isn't that the key? When did the moneylender decide to pay, to pay off and to cancel that debt that the two debtors owed? When was it? Was it when they kept on sending in their monthly payment with a little bit saying, oh, I'll get it, I'll get it, I'll get it done. Don't you worry. I'll, I'll pay off that debt someday. Here's a few pennies, here's a few pennies. I'll, I'm going to get it done, I promise. Is that when he decided to cancel the debt? No, he decided to cancel the debt when they could not pay. So long as you continue to try to pay God back, you will find your debt remains. You might be expecting to stand before God someday with an invoice. You'll have an invoice there, and you'll have that invoice there, and there's your debt. But hey, on this side over here, you got the credit of all your good works, and poof, there goes your debt. Is that what you're looking forward to? That is total folly, if that is the plan. You not only can't cover your infinite debt with grains of sand, God doesn't accept grains of sand. God only accepts the blood of his son in payment for your sin. He only accepts the payment of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, for your sin. So you need Jesus and you need him today. So would you turn from your sin, that's repentance, and accept this gift of forgiveness to have this debt of sin relieved from your shoulders. And guess what you will experience? A great relief and love towards your Savior. And for those of us who know the Savior and have experienced His grace, let's be reminded again today, verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful story of the woman who was forgiven. May it remind us that love flows from forgiveness. May it help us to reignite that love for Christ that we know is essential, but yet sometimes just ebbs and flows in our life. So God, I ask that you would help each of us to meditate upon and dwell upon our forgiveness in Jesus. It's real. It's forever. It cancels all of our debt. We carry none of it around anymore. God, would you help us in this area? Please bless the hearing of your word. May the seed travel deep into our hearts and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.